Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sam Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. How's it going, Matthew? You enjoying these uh, early March days when the podcast goes live, even though it's February when we're recording this? Uh, well, I don't know. I hope so. Unless something goes very badly wrong at Pancake Day tomorrow. <laughs> but I can't really imagine what could possibly happen that could be that bad. Will we have seen Batman by the time this is out? Uh, well, I will have seen Batman no after. I'm seeing it on the Monday. Are you seeing it on the Friday? Uh, okay, well, we won't have seen Batman, so we won't have had to deal with the potential disappointment of that being bad. So <laughs> I imagine both of us are probably stupidly invested in it being a good film. Yeah, it's weird for me to hear you say that, because I didn't think you really had much sort of like truck in sort of Batman as a character. But maybe um, maybe I love Batman! That. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not like a com- not like a big comics guy, but if there's a if there's a comic I do like, I've read more Batman than I've read anything else, and I love the films. Okay, well, fair. I mean, you know, I, I underestimated you clearly. Maybe we should have done another Batman special episode rather than like cramming it into the last twenty minutes of the Tomorrow episode like we did. We should we <laughs> could have done like a two hour one. Just like it was there was a lot of pressure in that episode, and I felt like I couldn't really talk about frivolous batman things when we'd heard some very important stuff about palestine <laughs> yeah it was it was definitely some contrast going on in that episode <laughs> but um yeah great episode nonetheless but uh, oh yeah. fantastic yeah yeah so uh, when they make a sequel to the batman uh the batman 2 or the the batman we will um <laughs> we will uh, do another episode then maybe but for the meantime we're doing an episode all about elden ring um, who out there wants to listen to two people who don't know that much about From Software games talk about the latest From Software games? Because that game, because that's what this podcast is basically. It's, <laughs> it's two people who are not experts but have um, properly given the game a run, and uh, we're, we're going to talk all about that this episode. So, in the first section, I'm back on the uh, episode planning duties this week for those who listen to the Chaotic Uncharted. <laughs> you episode. says everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first uh, section is about our background with FromSoft games, so a little bit of context. And then section two is all about Elden Ring, which I've played for 15 hours. How about you, Matthew? Do you know how much you've played? Oh, I've played it for 22 hours. Wow, okay, there you go. So, you know, some uh, plenty of experience there. I went out on Friday night, which is why I'm behind Matthew on the hours played. <laughs> but I think you we actually got... have a life. Um, <laughs> yeah, you see, if I'd planned this episode, section one would have been our background with FromSoft games, and section two would have been FromSoft games. Do you have a background? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And there would have been Elden Ring points in both sections and um, <laughs> and we would the same points would come up over and over again for 3 hours. Um people still enjoyed the Uncharted episode, Matthew. It was just, you know, it was just chaotic in its own special way. Um mm. I frankly thought it was beautiful. So <laughs> let's jump into it then. So do you remember when From Software's games first appeared on your radar? I guess I'm talking more specifically about Demon Souls there, Matthew, when it released on PS3 in the late noughties. But do you remember how you kind of first came into contact with this, like being a, a thing, being a phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it, it was probably like most people reading the early batch of import reviews and feeling the ripples from the release of Demon Souls in Japan kind of echoing out like... In, it's almost like there was this sort of first wave of journalists. I'm not attributing the series' success specifically to journalists, but for me, there was definitely this first wave who kind of cottoned on and started talking about it a lot. And they tended to be people of good taste. You know, it was, you know, your Kezas, your Simon Parkins, your Rich Stantons of the world, um, all former guests on this podcast. Um, and, yeah, like, I think when when the right people start making the right noises you tend to sort of 
absorb it on some level, even if you don't necessarily run out and import a PlayStation to play it yourself. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, I've told this story before on the uh, the podcast, but the first time I ever heard of Demon's Souls was um, we had uh, a section about Japanese games in play, the PlayStation magazine I worked on, and um, Chris Reynolds, the news editor on the magazine, I said, oh, look at this game that's ju- just coming out in Japan for PS3. I don't know why it's not coming out here, but it looks like Shadow of the Colossus, which is kind of a weird a weird statement in retrospect, but it kind of did from the screenshots. It was like a small dude and then like a big monster. So that kind of made sense. And then, yeah, after that, I sort of didn't really think about it so much. Um, a, couple, a year or two passes, maybe just a year, actually, 2009. I remember Kez's uh, review on Eurogamer being like a big moment. Um, mm. And I remember as well, I don't remember if it came before or after, but uh, Ashley Day on GameStM reviewed it as well, gave it a 10, I think. Um, and so it quickly emerged as, as this hardcore Japanese game in an era where Western action games were getting a bit gentler, arguably. And so, yeah, that, that's when it kind of like popped up. But, um, well, I don't know. I can't say I was on board from day one. Can you, Matthew? No, not really. I, I definitely bought it when it came out in the UK because I have distinct memory of playing like an hour of it and then never ever playing it again <laughs> <laughs> right yeah uh, which is going to be a kind of running theme with a lot of from software games for me but i can just remember being quite nervous going in and going well i know this has been pitched to me as this particularly brutal unforgiving thing and then it was brutal and unforgiving i was like oh yeah I'd, i probably should have expected this um so it's kind of my own fault really for just not <laughs> heeding people yeah i uh, sort of my memory of it is that the opening sort of theme that plays over like the cutscene was this quite aggressive electronic trumpet sort of going or something like that and then a dragon just sort of like vaguely hanging around a castle and i thought well you know this seems a little bit cheesy start playing it and like i think one of the first things that happens is like a skeleton comes out of nowhere and clobbers you and of course you die and I was kind of like, ah, I'm not sure I can set the time aside for this, even though I had nothing but time on my hands um, as a sing- <laughs> single man in Bournemouth at the time. Um, but yeah, I can't say it really clicked. So um, and then, yeah, so uh, time passes and then Dark Souls becomes a huge thing. I, I remember that Dark Souls cover of Edge very vividly. That was a, a really cool, felt like a big moment when that happened. And then, yeah, so Dark Souls obviously becomes a phenomenon. Uh, over the years, I never really properly engaged with it, only kind of like in a really brief way and just decide pretty quickly it's not for me. So, yeah, that's I kind remember of, yeah. being sort of jealous from afar, though, of the journalists who did get into it. Because I don't know if this happened down at Imagine, but at Future, basically every magazine had one person who was reviewing it, and they all formed like this little kind of is clique too strong a word? No, I'll say clique <laughs> of of um, sort of uber Dark Souls sort of hardened nerds who were all kind of exchanging war stories and riddles like they were actually adventurers. Yeah. Which I know from reading their subsequent write-ups was very exciting for all of them. When you're on the outside, it's quite irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, partly because that. of jealousy and partly because you're like, get over yourselves. <laughs> but the, the only thing I remember really, I remember picking up because that they talked about it a lot was, um, is it in Dark Souls you can get, is it cursed where your like, health bar's cut in half permanently? Right. Until you do something to, to remedy it. And that something is, is not something that you can just do immediately. It's like quite far... And I think Jason had been, uh, Jason Killingsworth on Edge, who was a big Dark Souls guy, had been cursed and it had zapped his health bar. 
And I don't know if he'd been cursed again, if that can happen, but he was basically like absolutely sort of fucked and had to try and make it to this thing with only this tiny sliver. And this was during the review window. And I remember thinking, oh, that's quite exciting. You know, that's, you know, that was, that was a story that has obviously stuck with me because of the drama of it. Um, And the kind of, I like that kind of absolute commitment to just sort of messing with people. Yeah. I think regardless of that sort of stuff, like I imagine my memory is that Ash was into it and then I don't remember there being a groundswell of other people who were into these games. Like, um, I think like a couple of people maybe were later, but it didn't, by 2011, I don't remember there being like a massive sort of following for it. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, I don't think so. What is a surprise in retrospect is how these games become like the center of games culture and like massive blockbusters which i don't think i ever would have saw coming like they always seemed like they were destined to be you know one to two million sellers and the same one to two million people would buy them each time and now we're at the point where elden ring i don't know is, is like comparable to horizon in terms of popularity and major sony exclusive so that happening is kind of miraculous but it is a testament to how the games got under people's skin and how they there was something in them that just really clicked with people whether it was the world building the the sort of like flavor of the world the atmosphere the kind of like um combat the stakes the kind of multiplayer elements there's a lot of different very specific things about about dark souls that obviously and demon souls that obviously becomes the kind of foundation of a genre in itself so really Mm. interesting to me that these became blockbusters you know seems like a surprise in retrospect yeah i mean again not attributing this to, to journalism because I know there's there's you know this coincides with the rise of influencers and YouTube and this stuff is is very entertaining to watch streamed and all this jazz because it's so sort of punishing so it gets a huge crowd from that but these games definitely seem to like resonate with journalists they got massive scores which must help them and also. I think they sort of the people who really got into these games and who are really into these games. I think it kind of changes them in a way in that their expectations or what they need to be thrilled from a game changes. It's a bit like dare I guess like Daredevil, you know, stunt people. You know when they, when you do something extraordinary, you know, the everyday becomes even more mundane by comparison and I wonder if you know actually it's kind of self-fulfilling prophecy a bit in that these people kind of get hooked on this thing that only this one company can can provide and so from that comes this sort of snowballing of acclaim because you know it's the only thing that you know every every time one of these games comes along every three years um you know it's it's the one thing which can give them that hit you know like these people cannot play and enjoy an assassin's creed (laughs) because they find it so boring i mean that may sound super melodramatic but talking to some people and i'm mainly basing this on my interactions with rich um <laughs> like it does dominate like the conversation and dominate their minds um to an extent that i think you know these games have sort of changed their sort of gaming kind of genetic code in a way <laughs> yeah i think there's something in that like you're talking to the person who wrote sekiro who has ruined all other games for me um for right except exactly it's that yeah 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 and that was specifically about the combat because once you've had experienced the combat that gives you that kind of rush it's really hard to go back to combat where it's like you press you you kind of feel like you're just counter-attacking you're not really attacking and like there's just not that one-to-one feeling that Sekiro has it's hard to hard to row back I will say that hasn't ruined my enjoyment of other games I just sort of see 
sort of um open world games with gentle combat as more being like a kind of a more relaxing experience i suppose mm. rather than an intense one so like ghost of tsushima was an example of that it was never hard that game but it was um it was relaxing to kind of go through it and still satisfying on its own terms but i can see why that happens for sure so mm. that seems like a good transition point matthew um, why don't you uh, tell me about from software's games that you've clicked with the most? Can you um, do you have much of a kind of background with them yourself? No, so I've played I've played about the first hour or two hours of every Dark Souls. The one that probably clicked with me the most was Sekiro. I never finished it, as I've said on this podcast before. But what I liked about Sekiro was that. It was that kind of pre-built character thing. I think the big problem I've had with a lot of these games is when I'm struggling, the first place my mind goes is not am I playing this wrong, but have I like scuppered myself in some way by picking the wrong character? You know, have I made bad RPG decisions? And in Sekiro, you don't really get to make any decisions. So you think, well, this is it. I've got the same thing that everyone else has. I have to make this work. And just that psychological change, I think, was enough to get me to stick with Sekiro. You know, in that it is the one I've played probably, I don't know, 20 hours of, 15, 20 hours of. Where the other ones, I just think there are too many variables at play. I don't even know where to begin improving, so I step away. Is has been, I would say, my sort of journey with Fromm's games. Yeah, I think I agree with that. So I'm sure that regular listeners know that I played a, a ton of Sekiro. I completed it twice, did the New Game Plus. Kind of had to break through this wall of like not being good enough at it, and then suddenly the Genichiro Ashina boss fight on top of the tower which kind of really properly teaches you how the kind of dueling mechanics work in there how to parry properly how to understand parrying that really clicked with me and yes I agree with you the reason I haven't gotten with their other games the most is I find a lot of their systems quite nebulous it's like mm. I didn't know not to bring a sword that I should have upgraded from somewhere else and actually this when we get to Elden Ring that's a problem I have with Elden Ring as well and the RPG stats, I've no idea what to throw my points into, but I'll only understand once I've got to a really hard boss that I've made a mistake, and that kind of sucks. Whereas <laughs> Sekiro's like, here's all the information you need, here's the stagger bar right up here, and to block attacks, you just need to press this one button, perfectly timed, but you only need to press this one button, and if it's an unblockable attack, you can go to the side or you can jump uh, jump while they swipe at you, and those those are basically the controls, and everyone has the same sword, you can change a couple of bits and pieces, but generally speaking, everyone, like you say, has this has this, the exact same thing. You don't have to factor in other players who might be summoned in. It's just you. It's just you in a duel with a, with a boss, and I think it's like perfectly calibrated and like the sort of peak of third person combat in games. So I felt like Dark Souls and Bloodborne did not have that, and were instead like. Do you know, you shoot your gun at some point and you'll um, be able to like parry this boss attacking you. The logic of it won't make any sense. It'll just be a vague point in the animation when you do it. And then you can like get a brutal <laughs> attack on them and then like, oh, a player just invaded my game, twatted me on the back of the head. And now I'm playing Dark Souls and a player just invaded my game and they're teleporting because we're playing on PC and they've just killed me. So I have to go back to the save point. And like Sekiro felt fair on its own terms to me, like tough, but fair. Whereas mm. Dark Souls and Demon Souls... I mean, there must be something about them that I just simply don't get. But that's my kind of like where the that's where the line is for me, Matthew. It's just like a system I understand versus one I don't, you know. 
Yeah. And, you know, and I get that for the people who do love this stuff, the vastness of, of its systems or the sort of the unknowableness of its systems is like the appeal, like deciphering it and kind of crafting your own way in it. But it's it's very, very easy to get lost, especially early on. And I just don't think those games give you much of a foothold. And I don't think they show you much that's particularly exciting in the first couple of hours to make you make it worth holding on and make it worth persevering with. Like the first spectacular thing you tend to encounter in those games is like the first major boss, which will be, you know, is always for me the the point where I sort of step away and fail. And it's like, well, I've got nothing, you know, if, if all I'm working towards is like an even nastier version of this, if I get beyond this, I just, I, yeah, I never really see the appeal. I never really get the magic. Um, yeah, just, but, yeah. I imagine but, you, yeah. like me, really respect, though, the kind of world-building yeah, element and, of it, you know. I do get it, and I, you know, and I, I get the talk, and you know, I've, I've read probably more about these games than I've read about any other games because you know, friends and beers are always writing excellent things about them, and it really does bring out the best in a lot of people in in terms of the writing. Anyway, you know, they're they're obviously like rich in ideas, and um, mechanically they're really rich, interesting things. They're sort of sort of kind of old school, but sort of blown out in a new interesting way and you know there's so much there that i i'm i'm into um it's it's just a point of huge frustration that i've not been able to mine it yeah there's um i suppose like the thing with the rpg stuff that i I should mention as a counterpoint is that it does give players a flexibility to play the way they want to play which um is no doubt a massive part of the appeal for a lot of people um so i should definitely acknowledge that when i uh, explain security, but yeah and to be fair, you know, whenever I am like, you know, oh, I'm starting one of these games, what should I start as? And ever, you know, people are very quick to tell me um, that, oh, there's no such thing as a bad class and blah, blah, blah. And that's a myth and, you know, this, that and the other. But there are definitely like, you know, there are cheesier classes. I think there are sort of a spectrum of difficulties hidden in those very early options and, I think that is because that, like I say, that is the make or break period of the game. I think actually those early options are probably more important than than some of the hardened fans give them credit for. You know, I definitely, you know, I felt like at Demon Souls, you know, like the remake, I got I got reasonably far. I say reasonably far. I got beyond like the first boss and opened up the game playing the sorcerer by the shooting everyone from afar, which you know didn't even cross my mind when I've played it all those years ago on PS3, but if I had, I probably would have played more of it. You know, this idea of, oh, actually, there is this class which keeps you out of harm's way, kind of gives you a nice projectile and kind of recharges itself. So there's a way of doing this. There is a way of, of getting through this easily. And, and um, you know, maybe it took years and years for people to cotton on and work these things out. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's that's, that's, that's always been, like, the big the big sticking point for me. Yeah, I have some interesting thoughts now relating to Elden Ring, which I'll, I'll get into a bit later. But like, um, lastly for this section then, Matthew, where, where do you stand on the difficulty conversation? It's always a discussion with these games. They don't have difficulty modes. You know, when um, I was on PC Gamer and um, uh, one of the writers produced a piece about using a kind of like uh, program to speed up or slow down Sekiro to beat the final boss, there was like, you know, the kind of reaction you would expect from the internet, deeply unpleasant, not very nice at all. Um, and um, you know it's it's sort of like it's a form of gatekeeping isn't it to to sort of like say oh you're you're a noob or get good and all that all that stuff 
But I was curious what you make of this, because I'm actually like not entirely sure where I stand on the difficulty conversation generally, because I'm a person who played God Hand on easy mode. Like I'm certainly not in the camp where I would rule anything out when it comes to difficulty. Um, but I do think games are allowed to be hard if that's the intent. Where do you stand on this sort of thing? Again, this always feels like a minefield. It feels like there is absolutely like a couple of truly incorrect answers, and I, I, I don't know what they are. I can never remember what they are. Um, I'm a, a big believer that they can they can make the game they want in terms of difficulty, and games don't owe us like understanding or even entertainment i think the thing they do owe us or, or increasingly like as you know as is definitely a growing concern is is the accessibility thing and i think accessibility gets a little smeared in with difficulty and i think that's where some of the some of the problems in the conversation lie Agreed. um i think you should have the right to play something you should have the ability to play something but you don't have the ability no one is owed the ability to be good at it you know like that that's as long as the baseline's there that you can play it i think that's i think that's an acceptable goal and by all accounts you know a lot of the from software games elden ring especially it's not particularly hot on that like it is it is not something which a lot of thought has been put into there is not a lot of accessibility options you know i i'd probably liken it to if you compare it to like film you know if you compare it to like quite a a hard experimental foreign film like it owns us the subtitles so we can understand it but you absolutely can pay money to go to a film and come out and not understand it or have not enjoyed it and that's perfectly fine but that is the rules of cinema that is acceptable yeah you know it's like titane does not have to be full of fucking laughs (laughs) i was just thinking about titane oh that's so funny amazing like titane is completely uncompromising and horrible and it's art it wasn't for me i thought i thought it was horrible but this idea that games can be art but they also have to be for everyone i don't think it can be both um i think you know anyone should have a chance at liking elden ring but i don't think everyone has to like it and it's quite kind of a i don't know like this idea that that's a criteria by what's by which something is is good that everyone likes it is i don't that doesn't really exist in in many forms of art at all i don't know why we're so hooked on it in games you know i I think it's absolutely fine for like you know rich to think bloodborne is the greatest game of all time and for me to have no time for it like we can still be pals and respect each other um i assume rich respects me (laughs) (laughs) very inspiring matthew i mean um a tough break for elden ring which has been compared to a film where a woman has sex with a fire engine like that's like (laughs) tough break i would say Um, a little bit harsh (laughs) i'm not saying it is the titan of of games but I don't know, like, I didn't understand uh, Twin Peaks Season 3. I'm not like David Lynch just to change it so I can understand it. You know, it's like, it's fine. But yeah, it's fine. It, you know, Twin Peaks Season 3, like, 60% of it was good and 40% of it was total dog shit. And that's like, the, <laughs> that was Twin Peaks Season 3. So, uh, and to be honest, Twin Peaks in general, that was pretty much Twin Peaks. So, um, yeah, good stuff, Matthew. We made it through without stepping on any mines. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. Um, it, those being um, mixed together is not uh, is not helpful. But generally speaking, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I think that if these games did have an easy difficulty, I wouldn't like resent it or anything. Um, and like, I just uh, yeah, I, it's it's just yeah. yeah, it's one of these things that. I have no real strong opinion on and like um but I do agree I with do, you that they can set the difficulty as high as they like that is in their ballpark as designers that's their decision yeah oh you know I, I wouldn't resent it if it had an easy mode I don't resent it because it doesn't I think both both those things are fair I think it actually in some of its online features which is something I've never really 
gotten far enough in any of these games to actually like click with or or experiment with like the fact that you can summon like a really good person into your game to kill a boss for you isn't that sort of like easy isn't that sort of easy mode oh yeah it definitely is and like i didn't realize it was this i was really bumping my head against something and then i just started summoning people and i was like oh this is great and did i feel a little bit dirty when they killed the first big boss for me maybe a little bit because i was like oh man i should have really done more um, like i was just watching from the sidelines but at the same time that's the system that's the game built that system i had the ingredients to activate the you know summoning portal or whatever i mean i played by its rules and so that's fine i i have some thoughts on this matthew but let's take a quick break and we'll come back and uh, dive into elden ring some more yeah let's do it Welcome back to the podcast. Two giant men play Elden Ring. Um, <laughs> two giant men sounds like a boss you would fight in uh, this game, doesn't it? So, Elden Ring, <laughs> Matthew, first impressions of the game when we started out. Hit me up. I, I thought it was. Go- I thought it, the opening to it is very like the openings to a lot of their games in that it's not very well tutorialized. It's got the same kind of feel as Dark Souls. It felt very Dark Soulsy to me, so I sort of felt this sort of like oh no this isn't going to be for me almost in fast forward mode i think the first proper enemy i encountered <laughs> you know when you step out into the world which is always this magic moment in games which is like that da 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 look at this huge landscape and you're like amazing and i think like the first thing in your eyeline is just so horrible this horrible man on a horse and three sentinel <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It wasn't even called that. It makes no sense. It's just, it's like having, what's the name of the person who sits you at a restaurant when you go in? Uh, um, the maitre d'. Yeah. It's like going to a really nice restaurant and a maitre d' just like punches you in the face <laughs> the second you step through the door. It's like literally on like, welcome to Elden. Oh, you're dead because of this giant fucker on a horse. I was like, oh no, this isn't for me. Basically, this game has been reviewed by people who love Dark Souls and Bloodborne and Sekiro and they were all telling me like it's super approachable and this is the big you know if you've never got on with these games before I think it was arguably like the quickest I've been punished in one of these games um so that was like my immediate (laughs) interaction with it yeah did you know there is a tutorial in this game Matthew when you start and you turn around there is a little king sat on a chair and if you fall down a hole there is a whole tutorial that explains all the controls to you did you know that so yeah yeah and i did do that but even so i still found it like because it's bad that's what i mean it's like bad at tutorials even within its tutorials it teaches you very limited stuff and it uses terminology in the game which you don't necessarily like understand and it doesn't like explain the ui there isn't a bit where you press a button to crouch under a log which i think every tutorial needs um if i'm not crouching under some granite at some point i'm kind of disappointed in this day and age so yeah like everyone was like i was like oh man i didn't really think the tutorial was very good and everyone was like oh no you go into the cave and there's a tutorial and it's like i did do that i thought people were saying like oh you go into the tutorial cave and then there's a hidden better tutorial in the tutorial cave no that is not true there is one not very good tutorial in a cave yeah that's true it doesn't explain all the systems to you but then like there are so many systems like that 
slowly unravel the games like I, I think the game's not as bad as some of the previous games explaining its systems honestly because it um it layers them on quite gradually like you go to this little abandoned church and it, it explains how like weapon crafting works a little bit not entirely and then you kind of find like this sort of uh ash spirit which is like a key system in the game and it, each time you get like a new thing or like the horse, they kind of explain to you like what the thing is, but not all of the specifics of how it works. That's kind of left to you as a player. So, and it, yeah, yeah, and it, it definitely ties some of its big features to progress. I think not massive progress, but like unless it's just like the first save point you sit at, you get given the horse or something. But there was there was a you know I spent a fair amount of time without a horse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. until something happened and I couldn't tell you like if I was writing a guide I wouldn't be able to tell you what triggered it but eventually some sort of um, strange woman gave me a horse and it's the same with the the woman who lets you summon creatures like she's at a car she's at like a church at night or something but what if you never went back to that church would you never get that like could could the game cut you off from its core feature set like that um, it's funny you say that actually, because not to jump ahead too much, but when I was trying to beat the first major boss in the game, as in like the first king you have to go and hunt down, that's the whole premise of the game, right? Is you're looking either to find or become the Elden Ring or something, and you have to kill these kings across <laughs> this like vast continent in order to do it. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first king you fight, um, I read a, <laughs> I read a walkthrough that said, oh, if you're struggling before you start the fight. Um, go to this little room and there's like a woman there and if you talk to her um, she'll like come help you as like an NPC in the fight and I went there and because I was being pursued by like about 17 different enemies they all just like went in battered her she died and then she was permanently out of the game and I was like right I have just missed out on (laughs) something that would have been quite useful in this boss fight Um, which I thought was really funny but definitely speaks to what you say of like there's some permanence to your actions that you may not understand until they've happened you know yeah that's kind of wild um so i'll give you my first thoughts matthew because i i i think i messaged you on when i first started playing this saying i think i fucking hate this game yeah and then that i I was instantly like "Uh uh-oh is this podcast gonna be like a nightmare (laughs) yeah so okay i'll just i'll put my cards on the table i think this game is phenomenal um i think it's an extraordinary piece of work there's like things about it i think are imperfect but they're mostly subjective and I think it's, like, fucking great. Like, I just really, really, really got into it. It's very rare I play a game 15 hours of a weekend. Um, mm. When I started out, uh, I felt very overwhelmed. I got fucked up by the horse guy like you did. I was super annoyed that I was just dodge rolling instead of, like, um, my beloved parrying system from Sekiro. Because <laughs> those dodge rolls are so nebulous. I have no idea when they work to, like, not get hit by an enemy and when they, like, when they don't work. Like, that's still really mm. confusing to me after all these hours. I assume there's like some invincibility animation frames in there or something, but God knows if I'll ever fucking work that out. Um, certainly haven't <laughs> after this amount of time. Um, but it's an obviously wonderful open world. Like um, the first area they put you in is like fantastic to the point where I thought if all I ever saw of this game was this part of the world and I did like some of the bosses hidden in this world and explored this part of the world, if that's all I ever did and then I beat like maybe one boss that would still be an amazing game experience because this is a great open world for like investigating pulling things apart that sort of stuff i don't want to get too Mm. into that side of things because i know we'll talk about it in a minute but the other thing i was struck by my first impressions was the different tiers of npc so the lady who gives you your horse 
She's like PS4 quality, I would say. Um, <laughs> so, some of the NPCs out in the world, they're like PS3 quality. <laughs> it's like, oh, his face lacks a bit of detail. And I, I was kind of like slightly amused that instead of being like one of these like big money bags open world, where it's like, look how fucking amazing this looks. It cruises on the strength of like great art direction first. And like looks, yeah. doesn't look like super up to date. In, like on the technical side um would you agree with that <laughs> yeah yeah but you can see like huge landmarks everywhere and just the shape of the landscape is really fun and interesting like the horizon is very knobbly and not just with mountains mm. there's all kinds of like weird crumbled masonry everywhere and strange little hidden corners and these like plummeting cliffs um i think in the same way actually that like that, that's it's one area where it is quite similar to Breath of the Wild, and I know we'll chat about some similarities in a bit. But is you know it has it kind of gets that like you know huge kind of impossible scale is a key part of the sort of fantasy playbook in a way. It's mm. it's more like how you imagine these fantasy worlds. It's not tr- it's not really a realistic place. You couldn't imagine people living here, um, but it's like a place where there's just huge chunks of like history studying the landscape in a really improbable way, but it's just really satisfying to look at. Yeah, for sure. Like it, you know, I, I never really quite know what's going on in the story, but like you say, it is just, it certainly has a vibe, very underrated part of what it does is the, um, it has good open world ambient music, like really good open world ambient music. And isn't it just one long ominous note on a cello? Oh, maybe it is, but I found it very atmospheric regardless. Um, so let's let's go to the open world side of things, Matthew, because that feels like a logical um, next step. So what do you make of it as an open world game? And how do you feel about the Breath of the Wild comparisons that have been rife with the discussion around this game? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see a lot of the Breath of the Wildness. Um, I think I think the key difference isn't necessarily something about world construction, but more like your abilities as a hero. I think Breath of the Wild is primarily an exploration game and you have climbing and um gliding which basically give you like complete command of the landscape this isn't as open as that you're on foot or on a horse the horse can do some pretty good jumping and there are these like air vents that kind of fire the horse up it's it's quite ridiculous how high that horse can go actually and like because of that, like they have a bit more control over where you can and can't go. Like it's quite an authored open world where Zelda is authored, but it also feels a bit more organic and natural because that's sort of how you approach it. You can genuinely come at everything from any angle in Zelda because you can climb on pretty much any surface. Here, if they want you to find a boss from a particular angle, if they want to frame a particular thing in a way, they have plenty of ways of doing that. You know, steep cliff walls, uh, huge plummeting drops, all this kind of stuff. Like it, it it's pe- people who are saying like this is this is a Breath of the World type killer or beater or whatever. I actually f- I was surprised actually. It felt a bit more artificial as a space, but then like artificial as in authored, handcrafted. Uh, which is like 100% what I would expect from Miyazaki. Like that was the thing I was interested in is, you know, he's known for these very ornate labyrinths and how do you make an open world that's ornate? And his version of that is, you know, is is a place where he, 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 he remains some control over the pacing of, of how you'll see things and discover things. It's sort of my broad take based on the opening areas anyway. 
my thought on the um, Breath of the World comparisons is they're not quite accurate, but I get why people are saying it. Open world game design has become so kind of like settled into a pattern that we don't have many points of comparison for a, a game like this, where like discovery in open world games has become all about the things you see and hear rather than about the things you learn. And mm. I think that that's where here the storytelling of From Software's previous games benefits from that larger canvas. The side quests it doesn't shout about, um, the kind of bits and pieces of information you hear about going to one place, the things you learn from going back to a place with new information. Like, I can see why a more organic, uh, guess like structured open world, it sort of like warrants that comparison because it's not the kind of open world that just says, here are all these icons, go to these different places. And th- those games are rife still. That is, they are the dominant games in that in this genre like for sure and that's unlikely to change anytime soon Mm. this is a game about discovery in a different way like um it'll fill your map with locations and um save points nice and generous with save points to make exploring the world very gentle which i think is actually like lowers the bar for entry compared to some of Mm. other games which i really like but it reminded me as much of like shadow the colossus's open world or final fantasy 15's open world as it did breath of the world really it was like i could see little bits and pieces that kind of yeah. like kind of made sense. Did you make a Xenoblade comparison, Matthew? On, on yeah, I, I th- that, that definitely Xenoblade was a thing. It, it most reminded me of in that it's another. It's a vast space. You know, it's great big rolling plains. It's really epic in every sense of the word. But it's also you know, it can hide stuff away in that, and it can hide quite big stuff away in that. Like you know, you can often see impressive things on the horizon, but when you get there you know things are so big in this world that they can basically disguise big things behind them like there's a lot of like constant reveals and sort of surprise and wow moments it's one of the things I, I've, I've really enjoyed about the first 20 hours of it. and that to me is, is very true of Xenoblade which is like a huge a huge open world but like the surprise is that it's much bigger than you think it is um also like structurally in terms of like difficulty like Xenoblade from the very first areas you're in it, it has the low level stuff that you're going to grind through, but it will also have like level 99, like end game monsters. And they, you know, they are blocking things off. And the kind of reward for being able to deal with them is that you get to see like another spectacular cranny. And that sort of is what this game does. Like there are, there are lots of places where there are big, horrible things to scare you away. I mean, you have, I would say some freedom to explore those places without fighting those things. Like there's a lot of stealth. You can, you know, you can, it's quite generous with like skirting around the edges of things without upsetting them. So it doesn't feel like, you know, you are not getting through here unless you kill the dragon. There tends to be a way around that dragon, but the, the general like flow of it and, and the fact that like the easiest and the worst stuff sits quite close together. That's very Xenoblade to me where like, you know, I think even in like Breath of the Wild, there is it feels like there is a difficulty progression throughout the world. Like certain there are there are nastier things in certain places, and there is a clear kind of pattern to how that world is maybe optimally explored. Where here, it's quite hard to like it would be quite hard to say that or draw that that logic out because it's all so sort of mushed together. Yeah, it's sort of like one of the things that happened to me was on the first day on Friday when it came out. You messaged me and said, oh, my brother said he did this thing where, like, he opened a chest and then found himself in, like, a, a terrible place or something like that. Yeah. And then on Sunday afternoon, that thing happened to me. Um, right. <laughs> and without spoiling it, because there's it is super cool 
first of all, what happens, I think. But it takes you to a location that's clearly like a late game or end game space. Mm. And you can, like you say, you can skirt around the edges because you've got the horse in this. The horse keeps you alive, basically. It gives mm. you the the ability to get out of any situation, which is actually very generous for a from software game when you really think about it. Um, mm. You're not just like going down a series of corridors waiting to get like fucked up by one monster and unable to go somewhere else. It's kind of like, well, this place is a disaster. I'll just go elsewhere and train for a while until I'm ready to go somewhere else. Um, but because I teleported to this place... First of all, it was like, oh shit, like, I can just fast travel back to the place where I was, but I kind of want to explore and see how long I can stay alive. And I did explore, I went around this entire area, finding the different um, sort of grace points, or whatever they're called, the um, the locate, the kind of like fire things where you save, um, found mm. loads of those, got hunted by tons of enemies that could kill me in one or two hits, but survived and like kept going, got a couple of cool bits, and then like, did the whole kind of like journey the whole ride back to where i was like um having teleported to the other side of the map and that was an amazing experience and like it's a nice example of them kind of like kind of creaking the door open and showing you what's behind it if you're when you're ready to go back but like it's you know if you want to you can just stay there and just try and play the game on the hard in the hardest way possible but also mm. it is them saying well, you know, you're not just stuck in this one area. There are ways to get to the other parts of the world if you really want to go and find them. And that is a really exciting notion in an open world game, I think. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. That that it's like a a punishment for some, but a, a huge opportunity for some others um, is, is a really sort of fun, flexible part. I actually think the hunting for the points of grace is the thing which reminds me most of Zelda in that, like the way my head kind of deals with this world is that when I when I haven't got a specific goal, like I know the story, the big story beat is in this scary castle and I can't do the boss there, so I'm going to go and explore for a bit. Like the thing I am working towards is finding more points of grace and like creating my network of fast travel, which is basically the shrines in Breath of the Wild. That's exactly how I explored that world too. Like if I saw a glint of a shrine, like... I made it my mission to get there because, you know, that would be a further foothold, you know, and it's about getting those footholds and getting further out. Like, the more uh, choices I have open to me to travel quickly around and regenerate in a certain area, like, the more comfortable I am then exploring in the immediate sort of vicinity. So that's, that, that, that is one point where maybe not, like, the design of the world, but, like, the rhythm of play definitely brought me back to that. Yeah. Uh, I think, like... um a, f- a kind of like key from software system that works really well in this game i think is the whole uh runes being the kind of like souls that you collect in this game and obviously if you die um then you can go back and collect the runes that you dropped but if you die again without collecting them they're gone forever because i kind of understand how these games work now i know it's no big deal when i lose like 1800 runes in like a fight or whatever that doesn't frustrate me because i have kind of set in my head i've settled down to like okay there are times in this game when i will just go out and grind to get these runes safely and there are times where i'm just playing to get through a particular level or a particular cave or whatever Mm. um and i think that this game makes you delineate that better than any of their previous games did because you have the open world and because it just feels like you can start again and it doesn't feel like it's the end of the world and yeah yeah it's 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 one of the weird things actually it's one of the weird rules of these games so when you die you lose your souls but you don't lose any objects you've picked up 
which means that like a valid tactic is just to leg it and pick up stuff, knowing that you can die and you'll basically teleport back to the safe point with what you picked up. So you don't have to have to plan to get out of a place. Mm. You just have to get in. And I think once you get over that psychological hurdle, you get that piece of information in your head, a lot of places you're like, well, this is just going to be like a smash and grab operation. You know, almost good. I don't have any runes. There is no risk here. Like, this is going to be an exploration run. I'm just going to go in there and see what the deal is, get a feel for the place, you know, basically sacrifice myself. I'm going to go, you know, it's it's like you know, sending Bruce Willis to the asteroid in, in Armageddon. You know, it's like, bye-bye, you're not coming back. Uh, but that's fine. Um, I can't believe I compared Elden Ring to Armageddon, like the dumbest shit ever. Um, but anyway, but that's that's been like a bit... Once I kind of got that into my thick skull, I could start like enjoying the world a bit more because I was like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'm, I'm not even going to think about the runes. I'm just going to like see what's around and see what happens. Yeah. If I can grab a point of grace along the way, then terrific. That's, uh, that's yeah, it, and that's 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 a bigger reward in a way. You're like, great. Now I, you know, I'm even deeper into this territory. Um, it, there's <laughs> like one way that it is different and brilliant to other, you know, open world games is, you know, it doesn't like draw your attention too much to those points of grace. You could be quite close to one and still miss it. And there's like an area where you're like, oh man, I really wish I had a point of grace, but I guess I'll push on or I guess I'll go back. And then maybe like the fifth, sixth time you realize it was just behind like some hut and you didn't notice it or whatever. I think that's like one area where it not signposting stuff is, is quite fun. There's that kind of head slap moment of like, oh man, you know, if only I'd known this whole thing could have been a lot easier, but you know, I'm kind of used to it now. Yeah. So something I love about that, about the open world structure, is that from the off, you can go and find a load of bosses in that first area that are all relatively simple to beat. Like, I've, I think I've fought, like, six or seven of them now, and none of them have been that challenging. Um, I think there's one I died on twice, but the rest I all killed first time. Um, and, like, that's... Um, and, and that feels deliberate, because... They obviously want you to scout around that first open world to uh, kind of like uh, to to understand the systems from doing these bosses to feel empowered doing it before you go and fight one of the quote unquote story bosses in the game, the one mm. of the kings. And I I really love that structure because when it's like oh pumpkin heads here, and it's like well I beat pumpkin head in like you know like twelve hits probably he was a piece of piss and like. That's cool that you can go explore like a dark cave. You don't know exactly what's down there. Might be something cool, might be something weird. And then there's a boss at the end of it and he's not that hard. So you, you can leave and, and have this kind of like self-contained Dark Souls style experience, but all inside this open world canvas where you're understanding how the game works before you kind of try and progress. I really love that about it. Yeah, that is good. I, I definitely get battered by a lot of those bosses. I'm definitely worse at this game from the sound of things. Like even the, the very first couple I found the quote-unquote easy easy kind of finger food bosses i was dying a lot to them but like as in it took me maybe four or five goes to get on top of them hmm. as opposed to 10 goes and then i never play the game again which is the difference also if you don't like it you're like ah fuck it i'll come back to this one later the, the weird thing that happens because of like just how many bosses and how much stuff there is it's actually in, in this opening area, you know, you're working towards this big castle, Stormvale Castle, and I, I did all that and, and the boss at the end of that. Um, and it was quite grueling. It was quite hard work. But then I went to, like, another castle 
in the area. I would say more off the, the beaten track. And I was at a point where my character was like leveled up and I'd upgraded a few weapons and I could absolutely womp that castle. Like it was the first time I felt like, oh, this is actually easy. Like I am, I am much stronger than this place. And I did wonder if, you know, like you say, with some of the bosses are kind of like about teaching you the kind of smaller things. If this castle, which is kind of quite southern sort of tip of the map, is almost meant to be like a tutorial like between those smaller dungeons and the big castle that you go to mm. and i just didn't find it in time or i found it like out of sequence because by the time i got there i know really like w- i just ate through people but then talking to people at work today they're like i went to that castle first and it's really fucking hard there's always horrible dogs um <laughs> but i was just like whacking dogs left right and center it was dog whacking time it was great <laughs> yeah so like the first time i come across like an encampment of like basically human troops that seemed like the hardest thing in the world to go around sneak killing them and then without realizing it five hours later i could just go there and it's like well this is so simple this is nothing like fighting an elite guy is like no big deal and then um that's tutorial camp that's what i I, that's where i go to test new weapons (laughs) oh right yeah that's a good good name for it um the only caveat to that of course is that there's that uh, fuck show gauntlet afterwards with the um the giant who comes down um when you run up that hill but that's pretty go- easy to go past on your horse don't waste time on um the giants <laughs> they're just a waste of time i think unless they're those ones pulling that big um that big trolley thing um the <laughs> ca- carriage thing um but anyway yes um yeah so i i, I think that the it does mean that it feels a bit more even-handed. And there were exceptions to that, Matthew. There were bosses who fucked me up. So the first time the game simulates uh, a player invading you um, outside of a cave, that dude flashing red, um, I probably took oh. me about 10 attempts to kill him, I think. Yeah, and also and the tree fucker, um, what's it called? Um, tree Sentinel. He was like 30 attempts. Like that was a lot of effort went into that one. And uh, yeah, so I could never quite understand if I was like the right level for it, you know. So there are definitely exceptions to that. There are deliberate areas you go to in the map where it's like, well, there's a giant dragon in the mi- middle of this lake. Don't fucking bother. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's got a weird like Goldilocks syndrome, though, where something's whomping your ass and you're, you, you're like, fuck this game. Fuck this guy. I really hate this guy. I hate everyone who made it. But then when it is too easy and you do it a little too easily, you're like, uh, that's a bit of a shame. You know, <laughs> like this, this feels a bit redundant or I feel like i feel like i've kind of broken it in a way so when i eventually killed the tree sentinel you know i'd leveled up like a long sword like seven times i had these two like ghost archer guys who i'd leveled up several times and like they alone were doing like most of the health bar eating i only had to jump and hit him a couple of times and then he was down and i was like you know what that like it didn't feel hugely satisfying like i'm not saying i want it to like scale but that is the downside to this this kind of design and like this is gonna sound like hubris because i know that there are going to be things in this game that even if you had you know the power of the gods they would still like stomp you easily um but it is it's it is funny how you go from fuck this to oh that was a bit <laughs> that was a bit of a pushover yeah uh, fight the just right spot is is very hard to hit in a game like this yeah, for sure. Like, um, so what? One of the first major bosses you fight is that Margit, the what's it? I can't remember what it's called, but like <laughs> the thing that guards the castle, basically. Margit the fell. Yeah, something like that. And so the uh, first time I tried, he I says, just... I, I fought that guy so many times. It's, I got screen burn of his name on my TV. 
now, now whenever I'm watching foreign TV, it looks like everyone's saying Margit the Fell. <laughs> the first time I fought him, I think I'd only upgraded my sword once, and I was like, this is just a fuck show. And like I was barely getting to like half his health. Then I went back about 10 hours later, maybe a bit less than that, but quite a lot later. And I just like absolutely, I beat him in like three attempts from that. Um, Summoned my little jellyfish lad. He was just spitting poison at him. And I just went (laughs) behind him and batted him, you know. I I still, I rely very heavily on those summons. Oh, yeah. I get the feel, like it must be sort of designed with that in mind. Like like I've seen some people who are like, eh, you know. The traditional players, as they refer to themselves, you know, they don't really use the summon, you know, that's kind of cheating. And you're like, this is a feature, this is a function in the game, they've designed this, there is a whole upgrade path, there is a challenge in finding summons to begin with. Like, they are perfectly valid to use, and I refuse to feel bad about using them. That's my other other point with this game, Matthew. This is a good opportunity to transition into this sort of, like, design side of things a bit more, which is, I think this game is designed to be broken by the player however they see fit like i think it's sort of like it's progression and like the the sort of bits of help you can have and and how exactly you kind of calibrate your character like it's designed i think to be like to even the odds as much as you want to like you're saying earlier like how summoning in um an actual human player to help you it feels like easy mode i've not done that so far right but i feel like the the jellyfish that i summon in to help like just to take just a few hits off of me while i go and batter the boss from behind has made the game just so much more palatable and like like you say that's a that's part of the game design like they want you to do this stuff they want you to like play it the way you want to play it that feels more like the design ethos of the game to me than don't use any of these systems we've designed do you know what i mean yeah and and it's just i'm like from a visual perspective it's a lot more spectacular when you've got like an army of like ghost skeletons or ghost wolves attacking something and it's all kicking off right that that just as a basic fantasy those are really cool spells you know i often hate in rpgs when you read a spell and you're like oh this sounds great and then you shoot it and it's just like the weediest projectile ever it's like the was it the chromatic orb or something in in like the original Baldur's gate you're like you know it's just like absolutely nothing here you know you feel powerful summoning those it plays into the fantasy of being like a weird badass who can summon these things i really like that i love that you can like it's not a piece of piss scaling them up you know you are committing to finding them leveling them up finding the items to leveling up like working out just the logic of them you know because that's that's part of all these games is they explain themselves so poorly like almost your reward for passing what the game has on offer is that you get to use these cool features and i feel like you know that i have got these guys working for me is like a well done matthew you worked out how our badly explained game works (laughs) and that's kind of good enough yeah i think so yeah and like um yeah it's yeah it's it's empowering to do that stuff and i don't know the kind of like i guess i i guess i'm feeding into this by not having used any summoned in human players yet but i think it's just because when they arrive it it maybe becomes too obvious to me that like the boss is just distracted by them and you're just battering the boss from behind whereas the summons are almost like a kind of weaker weedier version of that it's like yeah it's, yeah yeah. I think that that's that's what I felt when I killed that first king in the castle. There was just something like it looked wrong, like visually to see someone else doing the fight for me and being like much better than me. And I must say I actually had to throw like quite a few summons at it. Like it took me like five or six 
goes before I summoned a person who wasn't shit um, <laughs> or as shit as me. Like, we'd go in and they'd instantly get killed. And it's like, well, thanks for wasting that summon item, you prick. <laughs> you know, I wanted to send them, like, a horrible letter. But then you're like, well, I'm the one who asked your help. And it'd be kind of a, a bit childish of me to, <laughs> to do that. But when you summon the characters in this game, you don't get told, like, what you're really going to summon. You can see their name and, like, their picture. So you can, like, work out their class from that. And... <laughs> I don't <laughs> Some of them, you're like, if they're called David, I'm probably not going to summon them. Because I'm like, that's just a guy called David who doesn't know how to play this game and is accidentally offered his services. Wow. But if they've named themselves after, like, some legendary samurai, I'm like, fuck yes, this guy is definitely going to do the job. Um, but... That logic does not hold to be true because most of the people who call themselves after legendary samurai are as bad as I am at the game. Um, so it was just, it became quite funny about like a real like pick a mix of like, oh, let's see what this person's capable of. And the person who eventually got it, I think they were called like Mints or something like that. It was just really un- unappealing, unimpressive name, but they, um, Man, they knew their way around a samurai sword. I do love the idea that you, as like a rec- an army recruitment person, going, this guy is called David Smith. Ugh, not sure about it. But this guy is called Jonathan H. Grenade. He's fucking in. Uh, so um, I, I get really distracted as well, Matthew, when you say pick and mix now, because I just think of the Game Pass competitor draft. <laughs> That's good. I, I am glad that I, I've made such an impact that I've changed the entire perception of a, <laughs> of a candy for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... Um, I think that's um, that's an interesting point. So the I'm not actually totally convinced by the bosses, right, just yet. So the spectacle is amazing, and you're not really rushed into tough encounters. I, but like, I haven't fought anywhere I've I've thought I've truly mastered what's going on. I feel like I've just muddled through and got on with it. Whereas I think every one of Sekiro's bosses, minus the Demon of Hatred, which was very much like a Dark Souls boss, and what I thought was the poorest boss in that game. Mm. Just a wankery through fireballs at you across a vast field. Wasn't into that at all. Um, <laughs> I think, like, I love that that was the design document for it too. <laughs> yeah, GDD. Just... Like, what's what's next, Miyazaki-san? <laughs> uh, there's some wankery throws fireballs, and they're like, nice one. <laughs> but he's... I can't wait to watch the ten-hour law video. <laughs> <laughs> hey, to be fair, that wanker with fireballs does have a tragic backstory without ruining it. So, um, <laughs> oh, I bet he does. He does. Yeah, like uh, I don't want to spoil it for people, but he's uh, yeah, a very familiar face. Anyway. So, yeah, I can't say that whenever I've been dodge rolling from the king or Margit or whatever, and like sometimes it hits me, sometimes it doesn't with a big hammer or a big sword, I can't say I really understand what the dodge roll's actually doing. Because sometimes it seems like magic and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm like, just kind of annoyed by it. I never really know when I'm staggering an enemy either. Like, I've done it a couple of times, but there's no prompt to tell me that like how how close I am to doing it. It just feels like a thing that kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, And like... That does seem like a step back from Sekiro to me. What do you what do you think of that? Yeah. It doesn't help the first two. They're kinda similar in that like they're both quite big lads who get up close and sort of you know, swing stuff around. I mean the second one's got a few more like projectile stuff, but I I felt like, oh, it's just like an even nastier version. This is this is like the king is clearly just a guy who employs monsters that are like him. Um, because that's the guy at the gate. Yeah, like those two didn't really do it for me i found lots of like weird stuff in the world and it's more from like an art perspective i think that i dig them like that i think it's one of the earliest things you meet is like a in one of the little sub tombs it's like a sort of mechanical cat that breathes fire (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but it looks like a taxidermied cat. And when you go into the room, like its head cranks around and it's got this extremely cursed energy for listeners to last week's episode. <laughs> this thing is like definitively cursed because <laughs> it's like taxidermy cursed, you know, back from the dead cursed, breathing fire, limited space, obviously cursed the way it like hops around. I thought that, like, it wasn't too difficult to fight, but I loved looking at it. I loved, like, being near it. It was kind of like, oh, this is this is a, a really ingenious thing. And it got me excited that, like, even in these sub-dungeons, you might find something really weird and creepy like that. Yeah. Um, I thought, i tell you what, the, the best fights I've had have been out in the open world. And the way they've used the open world space. So there was, like, a, a, a big lad at the bottom of a tree... I'm trying to avoid like massive spoilers by naming anything, but I actually don't remember what any of them are called. So there's this big guy at the bottom of the tree, but there's like giant pots, and as he's going after you, he's like shattering these pots, which is visually like really exciting. It is just a variation on like a big guy you roll away and then hit him when he's out of breath or whatever. Um, have you fought the ghost boat? Yes, I loved that. I thought that was really good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am. Um, I, admittedly, I did look up a walkthrough to see how do you get the little fucking skeleton men who follow you around, and it was like you have to go kill the ghost boat. But oh, right, it was but, a cool but, visual. Yeah, like I like that it was just a, a village in the open world, and it's flooded, and there's something clearly there in like a boat, and you're like, oh, well, that looks like bad news. But like the arena for it is sort of set by the the environmental design. It's like the lake of this flooded village, and it's sort of this little boat is kind of powering around, but. That that to me is like that's the marriage of like open world and Dark Souls. I was kind of hoping for. I think that is the fight where it, like the whole thing sort of clicked into place for me. I was like, oh yeah, this is really you know this this feels like a really high grade focused encounter. But I kind of stumbled upon it outside. You know, it, it in itself is exciting, but it also makes me excited for like what else there could possibly be hiding like just around the corner like i was not expecting this no one was like go to the village there's a ghost boat um you know the writing in this game's obviously um way more sophisticated than than i could possibly do <laughs> um so yeah i you know that 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 for me was like that's the stuff i'm more interested in i, I think rather than you're going to be stuck in arena with just like this giant fucking horrible thing which takes up like half the arena yeah yeah i think um yeah so the ghost boat thing one of the uh, one elegant design touch about that i really love is that when you get the um the summon off of that boss after you defeated it um you summon these two skeleton men they run into battle for you and when they got knocked down they can actually like get back up and like um basically revive and then fight again unless yeah, yeah, yeah. unless the enemy destroys the bones while they're on the ground and you fighting this floating boat when it summoned the skeleton men itself uh, it obeyed those exact same mechanics where the skeleton men would just keep rising unless you hit the bones and then the, those skeleton men would be gone and i thought that was a really beautiful little bit yeah of design. yeah um yeah i've never been disappointed wandering into a cave in this game either there's always something there they're all quite different from each other like it feels like that team has relished having an open world to hide secrets in um mm. and it's Don't you, yeah. I, I, the funny thing about listening to people talk about the the open worldness and how unlike you know the kind of opposite of like a ubisoft game is is actually it does have a lot of the logic to it it doesn't explicitly put it on there with icons and stuff but like there are statues that if you activate they point you to where a hidden tomb is you know 
there are things that there are there are you know little obelisks that if you find them they will fill in a portion of your map like as an illustration it doesn't fill it with icons or anything but it gives you like more stuff to play with uh, and then that map itself you know it's kind of drawn by hand but there are it hints at secrets like if you look very carefully you can sort of see the hints of caves you know and, and or maybe things secluded by tree lines that you can't see so like for all this talk of like you know, oh, it's truly revolutionary, you know, open world game, we've never seen anything like it. I actually think there are conservative elements to this map. I think there are conservative ways that the world works. Like, it isn't... There's stuff you're like, I've, I have I have seen this before. You know, you've, you've made it slightly more obscured, but it's the same thinking. Yeah, it's like... it's. I mean, I don't really agree with the notion of using this game to, like, as a stick to beat Ubisoft open world games with, which you know uh, very enjoyable in their own right and yeah, quite and I, or, you could argue as well matthew that the player messages in this are like the most obnoxious form of like um <laughs> sort of like points on a map or points telling you where to go or what to do yeah they're like tool tips from like youtube commenters basically oh they're awful the worst thing that it is two bad things is one people who are like jump off here when it's obviously just a cliff and you'll die that is so lame and you find it and then like 10 steps down the coastline there's another message saying the same things it's just like endless shit patter you know lining up across the coastline like bird shit it's just awful (laughs) and the other thing is one of the key bits of terminology in the game is about is fingers because the, the the things that guide you are called the fingers, and so cause you have like a limited pool of words that you can make the messages from. I believe is how it works. Yeah. And because of this, fingers has just opened up loads of like really weird, creepy shit. I have seen. I don't know if you keep seeing this. The the fingered butthole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So many people use fingers, but with a single T, and then hole, H-O-L-E, or hole, you know, I, and I've seen that message so many times, and everyone must be like, ha, 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 you know, I've worked out to write something rude using the limited words, but it's so tedious. There's a system in place that when you find these messages, you can, like, vote, <laughs> uh, you can say they're good or bad. I think if you... If you I think if you have any interaction with them, it heals the person who left them, I think is the rule. Yeah. But I would honestly make the case that if people vote down, it drains your health. I think that would be so good. I think you should be able to punish the pattern merchants by just downvoting them into death. So they're in the middle of a boss fight and their health starts plummeting for no reason. I want them to know it's because I didn't like their butthole joke. <laughs> The, 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 sorry, the 50th butthole joke I found in the same two. <laughs> well, I love the idea as well that if they boot the game up and their health bar is suddenly like 2 HP, and like, <laughs> and like, that's why, that would be beautiful for sure. But um, And it should just yeah. say, like, in that giant sort of from software font, like, get better patter, <laughs> it, just across the middle of the screen in like giant gold letters. <laughs> I was there thinking, like, um, A, I might yank my Ethernet cable out of the back of my PS5 so I can enjoy this while turning off this, like, like a live YouTube comments on an E3 conference horseshit. Turn all that off. <laughs> but also, I was kind of there thinking, very bold of From Software to spend years crafting this beautiful open world game <laughs> only to let people turn it into a fucking National Express coach toilet. 
like <laughs> on, a, on like a stag do. That is yeah. that is like kind of strange. And I I I remember what the player messages are like in like Dark Souls, but here because of the vast amount of space, people are allowed to be more obnoxious, and there are so many like bits you shouldn't be able to go to when you see a message there, and it's like yeah, it's just going to say. I shouldn't be here or whatever. And it's like, they're very rarely <laughs> useful. Like a couple of times they've pointed out an item and have been like, very good. But yes, every butthole, a little piece of me dies forever. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah. So Matthew, is it fair to say that you're clicking with it more than previous from software games? Yeah, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really into it. Um, I think it just, the freedom to not butt heads with like one um, bottleneck just it, i can appreciate so much more of what they have to offer like i can see just so many more enemy types and boss designs and all their mad art you know i can see that stuff and i can really enjoy it i can you know i can just survive for a lot longer like the game has a bit of momentum that that i've always been missing from these other games because they're so stop start you know here there are lots of subtle things whether it's the you know, finding a new point of grace and being able to fast travel back there so that you can push deeper, sort of faster. Or the fact that it's got this really neat little mechanic that when you kill, like, a group of enemies that are sort of together in an area, it replenishes your health or magic. So you can sort of use a couple of of pots of, like, health flask um, to fight, like, five wolves as long as you kill all five of those wolves. And that's like a, yeah, great, you know, there, there was no cost to this. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And because of that, like, A, I'm making much more progress. And also just, you know, it's how I played, you know, 20 plus hours over the weekend. It's it's just more, way more Moorish because it's constantly like, you can do it. There's something here for you. You know, there's always something there you can do. You know, you may have to go looking for it. You know, you, you may pick the wrong thing and keep bouncing off something. But I think... After so many deaths, you know, like, this isn't for me right now. Like, this particular place isn't for me. Like, that is the message you're meant to take away from it. And so just go and find something else that is for you, and you probably will find it. And that, for me, is just... like That's, like, the revolutionary thing, I think, about Elden Ring. Yeah, for sure. Like you say, no bottleneck. So it's not like I'm just going to butt up against Ornstein and Smaug or whoever the fuck it is in Dark Souls who um, I got stuck on because um, my big sword wasn't good enough. Like, um, like it, yeah, it's sort of just like, oh, okay, well, this is hard. I'll just go somewhere else. And even when you do go to a tough place, yeah, like you say, because you can get out of it on horseback, it's not a big deal. And so there's loads to do before you even get to the critical path, really. Um, like, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's, yeah. I, 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 you know... Th- Early on, in my first maybe 10 hours with it, I was constantly fretting, like, oh, should I be doing the critical path? Like, am I actually playing this wrong? Like, if, if it sends me... Because you, you can get to the first big castle quite early on. It's like, well, if I can get here, like, shouldn't I be going here? Like, every bit of my brain says it's funneling me towards this place. But the difficulty there is so stiff compared to the rest of it. And I think it is, like, a big, big jump up. You know, that first boss... And, and opens up like the castle and then the castle is full of some really nasty shit compared to like what you've probably been encountering outside the castle in the immediate vicinity of the castle but then you know you can spend you know i know people who've played 30 hours and not gone even you know not even done that first boss outside the castle you know there is a way to go around the castle and get to the rest of the open world without even going through it you know there are there are i i think we're so used to knowing like how to play something i think we're so used to games sort of 
subtly teaching us how to play or what to do that you know the sort of almost the mega shrug of this one is is sort of throws you off a bit you have to kind of get your head around that and go oh i'm just allowed to do whatever and like that's perfectly valid and it is perfectly valid yeah for sure um so matthew are there parts of the world without spoiling too much for people you thought are cool or unexpected events that kind of like dazzled you in your first uh, 22 hours of the game yeah i th- i think the I mean, the main castle that the stormvale castle which is like the, the, the first big thing you go to it's kind of weird because when you go in there it becomes what i would identify as a more traditional dark souls level which i think is fair absolutely yeah yeah it and it's like but it's this actually you know you've just done this place where you've got wide open plains and quite simple tombs that maybe take like 10 minutes to clear out and you've suddenly got this really like ornate chunk of game design and that is quite exciting because it's it's just a completely different flavor to the rest of it um it was it slowed my progress right down because you i think you actually have to start playing it a bit more like dark souls you have to be a lot more cautious it's here where they start doing all that shit where they like hide people around corners and jump out and kill you which is quite hard to do in an open world where you know the corners are not as obvious but i you know maybe because by the time i got in there i had more equipment and more stuff and and more kind of tools to play with i actually got further in that than i probably have any like piece of game design in their previous games and you know i loved it i just i loved how how riddled with secrets it was how even the most obscure route you think this couldn't possibly be taking me somewhere good and the way it kind of links back round and snakes back round and this may seem like really dumb because i know that this is what dark souls i know that this is what all these games are about is this kind of interlinking looping back world design but to be able to like appreciate it and actually get through it it's kind of a wonderful thing so you know it's kind of as dumb as it is it's like discovering oh right that yeah i get it like that this is cool when you can do it (laughs) yeah yeah for sure like um i i felt that way about that castle too i was actually surprised how quickly i got through it like i think it took me about two hours until to get through it like it wasn't like an all-day thing or anything i think it's because i was very i was like level 39 when i was doing it so i was quite Oh, wow. How do you level up so fast? Uh, there's a place you can go to that has enemies that drop a thousand XP each time you hit, each time you kill one. And oh, wow. they can kill you instantly if you're not careful. But if you are careful, you can just do like seven of them at a time, rest, spawn seven at a time, rest. And like, I just, <laughs> I just did that as a kind of time saving mode, I guess. Oh, um, boy. Yeah. I think I'm only like level 32 now. That's impressive. That's impressive. Like, I, I did read that. Level thirty was recommended for um, the king there. So, um, oh Matt, yeah, it's I, because I'm trying not to read anything online about it. Yeah, I'm trying to like be like pure <laughs> to see if I can work it out. Not from like a ooh, I'm better than people. You know, I just want to see what it's like to not you know look at stuff. That's fair. Um, I didn't. It's that. that castle. I mean, that took me like five, six hours. I mean, it was it was a slow going. There were like two bits in it i just i just couldn't get through and yeah I, I eventually like jumped off some battlements onto this tiny ledge and it took me like all around the houses but like opened up like a completely new route for the whole castle and that sense of like hitting a switch and suddenly you find yourself back where you you know you previously were and you're the, like the sense of comfort and warmth of like oh yes i'm back on safe ground you know i have made 
permanent serious progress that is really really cool yeah i think i know like the elevator had the really eureka moment was the one next to the grace point that's got like um a bunch of eagles of blade uh, blades on their legs outside um, oh. and like a little a, a little knight with wind powers next to a, a shaft like just near that like that's that lift was the one where it was like oh yeah that feels fucking good like um yeah that is that is mega piss those birds with giant <laughs> spikes on their feet <laughs> yeah I, do you know what there's a I, i'm not entirely convinced by the zed locking in this either like sometimes that's like just does not work at all for some types of enemies really i particularly yeah. found the bosses so sort of struggling with uh, with the zed lock for that but um yeah so so yeah that's that's true of that castle but like um even there there were like locations where you come to a vast courtyard that's absolutely packed with enemies, like basically like a battalion of enemies. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. if you stay and fight there, you're fucked. Don't do that. Just run away and just go and find the next point of grace. That's what I did, basically. Like, um, and I got through it fairly quickly. And then I, th- I, yeah, I lured every single one of them one by one through a door. <laughs> that is crazy. Why don't you just run past them? Because I tried that several times and kept getting killed. Like I just couldn't work out where I was meant to go. Right. So this this one time I made it to that court that courtyard and I had like the most health I have ever had at that point. Hey. And I was like, I am gonna do this man by man if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me tell you about how I killed the boss in that castle. Right. So yeah. So on my teleportation adventure to an end game part of the map. Right. I'm just gonna call it. Mordor, because that's basically what it felt like. <laughs> um, I found so first of all, I found like a golden seed in like a chest there, which felt like an amazing reward for being there, because that obviously you collect those to give yourself more flasks to heal. So it meant I went into that boss fight with seven heal flasks, which felt you know which which was good. And um, the other thing I got there was this summon of like a mangy dog. If this mangy dog, when you summon it, manages to land like ten hits, I think it is. It basically causes like a rot effect on on the enemy, and so I basically just had to distract the king long enough for that dog to just like bite him <laughs> from behind. And once he did, his health bar was just ticking down constantly, and all I had to do was back away while he slowly died, like the end of Metal Gear Solid Three or something. Like it was just like basically slow, slow kind of like death. Um, while I just kind of and like. It took a few attempts for that to work, and I tried to do it on the legit, but that's what I mean by the game wants you to break it. I was never supposed to be in that land I teleported to, or was I? Because this chest is there, so clearly you're meant to go there. By going Mm. there, I found a a reward for exploring and surviving that I was later able to use to help take down this boss relatively easily. And I think that's like beautiful game design, really. Because it... it, (laughs) It's the narrative of that I love, where it's like the pep talk to the dog. It's like, I'm going to distract this guy long enough for you to very slowly poison him. (laughs) You horrible, mangy dog. (laughs) You need to bite him ten times on the arse. Because, like, for me, the summons are, you look at the summon and I will hit you in the back with a long sword. I like the idea that in in your fight, like, the dog's sort of the hero and you're the bait. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly right, yeah. Uh and then the dog's like we've all got to do this to make this one awesome opportunity for luke skywalker to blow up the death star <laughs> oh wait no it's uh, for one mangy dog to maybe give someone rabies <laughs> <laughs> i like i love the way that that's like how this king died as well it's like nothing has beaten me except the spirit of a mangy dog um from this land far away 
Um, oh, that is so good. Yeah. On another note, actually, I sort of like, I do like the kind of names of the places there, but I think they could have done with being more literal. Um, I would have gone like with that place I got teleport to. I would have called that the Fucklands. That's like a good name for it. Um, there should have there should be Dragon Prick Lake. That should be another location. In fact, most of the east side of the map should just have the letters No written on it. Like that's kind of like um, that would be a bit more literal. I think, Welcome but. to the Nopelands. <laughs> so um, there was like one thing that happened. So I, I I won't talk any more about the place I teleport to because people really should discover it. But there was something that appeared there. That I where I went, oh shit, that is one of the raddest things that has ever happened in a game. And it is kind of linked to to how I kind of described it. It's really, really good, but I'll, I'll wait till people get there. Um, how did you feel about the fact that I, I feel like Sean Bean must be in this game, Matthew? Like, Oh, there's a lot, there's a lot of like sad northerners. There is, but <laughs> surely one of them in that like round table room is definitely Sean Bean. He's like it's, it's like the guy sat on a chair slightly away from the table. That guy is Sean oh, Bean for maybe. sure. I'm like nearly convinced that's Sean Bean. But I thought one yeah. of them was. Um, do you watch Staff Let's Flats? Yeah, I I swear one of them is his sister. <laughs> wow, I could really see that though. They're kind of mo- I, they're I like millennial just, age, I, I, unless. But I, and it might just be my mind playing tricks on me. But one of the, the I think yeah one of one of you know one of the the, the sort of sad sad sort of women characters had the similar kind of sort of twang that her voice has. I thought is that her? Because I know that they call on a lot of like quite weird British talent to be in these games. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Re- um, Go on. Sorry. One. Um, one, I think one place I really loved uh, was that. Have you done Morn Castle? Uh, tell me about it. That it's the, it's the, the the castle on the southernmost tip. Someone tells you about it being full of horrible dog men. Uh, no, I don't think I have done that. No. So, it's like a. It's it's just a really old school car. You can see it. It looks massive, and you think, "Well, I'm going to have an adventure there." And it's something that I think Miyazaki taps into a lot is the idea of, like, quite broad adventure tropes. And here, because the world is a little sunnier than his usual thing, it isn't totally fucked. It's like, it feels pre-apocalypse, which I wouldn't say is true of, like, his other games. You know, a castle is still sort of a functioning castle when you get there. It's kind of exciting. You know, from just, like, a swords and sorcery perspective, you're like, oh, great, I'm going to invade this castle and see what lies inside. And it taps into that quite Zelda-y kind of sense of adventure. So that's fun. But there's this basically huge... There's, like, a giant who guards it, which is why I think people don't go near it, because they look at the giant and go, well, that must be bad news, that must be endgame. <laughs> and he's got, like, a sort of... He's carrying, like, basically, like, a ballista. And in the approach to it, he fires this sort of ballista at you, and the run-up to it is, is it's like, a huge field. And to get to the castle, you basically just have to ride around this giant bolts that are slamming into you. And you would swear it was scripted. Like, when you approach it, the first arrow thunks into the ground, and you're like, wow, where did that come from? And it's only when you get closer you realise there's this guy with this bow. But it's not. It's just an enemy doing his attack from afar. And it feels so authored and exciting, you know. It feels like um, those moments in, like, Metal Gear Solid Five, where... You know, you'd be open worlding it, and then occasionally it would it would be a more cinematic thing, like the sniper fight with um, Quiet, for example, where it suddenly becomes like a lot more controlled. It sort of felt like that. It felt like a open world 
sort of story moment, which is something I really love it when open worlds do that. Because most open worlds are like the space in between, nothing happens. All the story happens when you get to a place. And actually seeing it play out on this grand scale, it was just so exciting. And once you get into the castle, it was a really fun little mini-adventure. Um, you should definitely do it. It's, it's rad as hell. Um, yeah. But that, that, the moment where these bolts just started raining down, I was like, ah, oh, fuck, get on my horse, just go for it and try and get there and... That was that was really great. Like that's a just a pure like fantasy moment. I will say that the horse in general is really well done. Like the um there's just a tiny bit of whimsy to that horse's double jump that I think is like <laughs> delightful. And like I'm not used to seeing whimsy in these games, you know what I mean? And, like yeah. but it's kinda like a ding and a little blue flash and then like your horse has got a bit higher and it's like just quite quite pleasant. Um It's it's very like fast and he's quite easy to steer. It's quite an arcadey horse. You'd think that Miyazaki would make like a really messed up horse that doesn't function <laughs> yeah, right. Tank but horse. actually it's like it's like a horse in like gun or something, you know, rather than <laughs> a horse in Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, you know, well, it's it's uh, got a bit more kind of just sort of, it sort of slides around in a kind of uh, decent way. Yeah, it's like I'm surprised this doesn't control like a fucking like a, a like a bomber in Armor Three or something. Like it's <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that's kind of what you expect. Like just yeah. I shouldn't be able to like use this at all, really. Um, but you can do some quite finessed platforming. Like you can jump him all all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it is super fun. So I'm pleased that they let themselves have the kind of like fun. Um, a sort of traversal bits of an open world game when they want to as well. That's like, uh, it's just good. Just just very, 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 very well done. Um, any any kind of further thoughts, Matthew, or shall we uh, wrap our Elden Ring thoughts there? I was just going to say, did you get to the, have you have you met the giant turtle with a bell yet? No, I haven't. Is he in the next kind of place after you beat the king? No, no, he's, he's, he's in the opening area. Wow, okay. No, I've not seen him at all. How is, yeah, like, how is that possible? I've been there for so long now. Yeah, I know. It's head south honestly i think south is genuinely the true tutorial area for the game like it's it looks scary but actually things there are way more doable than like anything in the castle and yeah like i wouldn't say what you've got to do but like you see this thing and you're like oh shit i'm gonna have a really nasty time now but what they do with it and what it is is actually more sort of riddly it's more kind of quirky and weird um it's you know there's like magic in it it's got the same the same sort of magic as um like the treasure riddles in breath of the wild where that weird bird kind of sings songs and he kind of tells you just to do actions in strange places and it triggers weird stuff there's a lot of that kind of sort of slightly mysterious layer to this world where you think there could be stuff all around me like just on the opening beach there's these sort of very strange symbols appearing in the sand and you're like well this is definitely something but i cannot make anything happen here as far as i can see um you know there's it feels like there's gonna be stuff to unpack for like months if not years yeah for sure in general did you have any thoughts on the kind of like world itself i couldn't help but think of like <laughs> like the british empire like the idea of just like this uh, like decaying place like because everyone's british i guess it feeds into that but decla- decaying place occupied by these kings holding on to power in a in a world that's like already kind of beyond them like do you have any thoughts, any kind of like top level thoughts on the sort of story side of things? I mean, I, I, only, you know, the top level thought is only that, like I say, it's, it doesn't yet, the world doesn't yet feel like totally doomed. And that is a big thing. Like I find the other, his other games very, very oppressive mm. where even if you're making progress, it's just like, well, I'm making progress in this like dead world. And 
you know, the aim of the game isn't to like fix the dead world. It's just to not be dead yourself. And, uh, you know, this, you know, you meet, you know, there are slightly more traditional NPCs who give you more traditional quests. There are funny people who don't talk in like super broken sort of Miyazaki speak. You know, there are people who will literally say, my dad is over here and I need this and go and deliver this thing. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like, you know, it feels like there's a bit of life in it. And just from a motivational point of view, like, that's quite important for me. Like, I have to feel like there's some reason to do something. Like, I want I want this place to sort of be okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and that's, you know, don't don't um, underestimate the kind of power of, of that. Yeah. And whereas, like, Bloodborne just felt mega fucked from the off. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're like, well, you know... You know, well, I don't know what happens at the end of Bloodborne, but I imagine you just find out that yes, it was all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like in, in how in Sekiro, basically every everything is rotten from the inside in this kind of like. I really like that. One other thing I kind of wanted to shout out actually was now I've I've played enough of these games now to know when different elements kind of recur, and so when I fought the Tree Sentinel, I immediately thought of um, the horse, the boss on a horse in Sekiro, who you encounter after you dodge the stake oh, yeah. in that valley. Like I, he must be like, <laughs> like a similar model or animate animated the same or something like that. He was right. one example of that. That's <laughs> happened a few times where I've seen elements from other games in there, and like you can call them, you could call them like recycling assets, right? But I don't really see it that way. I kind of see it as like he's almost remixing trademarks of his and different yeah. bits and pieces, and like. Each game kind of builds on the next one, and even if they're not technically linked by story or series, and like they kind of, it's like an accumulation of elements of like things yeah. he's interested in and they're interested. You know what I mean? It's, and it, yeah, and it, you, the I think the kind of the effect of that when it all comes together is that like the world, you know, the world is almost what you imagine the inside of Miyazaki's head to look like. It is this open world where like all the elements of his games sort of live together. Mm. It's almost like uh, like a Walt Disney Land of <laughs> of like Miyazaki because it's got like regions. It's like welcome to the half the fucking plague zone. This is where all my plague bullshit lives, <laughs> and here's the fire zone where all my fiery bullshit lives. And this is the kind of green one where like the the little gobliny things live, and it's a bit more chill. Yeah, there is there is a hint of that. Like you occasionally see things, and you think, "I swear, I saw that prop in Bloodborne." Like those gravestones look very familiar to me. <laughs> yeah, it was something that I saw Rich say on Twitter. Actually, is um, one thing I really didn't expect, but I'm very happy about is a number of Souls Law references. God knows what George R. R. Martin did on this because it feels like pure Miyazaki to me, and a direct through line from the earlier games. I also enjoy the visual and thematic callbacks. Godric, for example, is clearly the successor boss to Father Gascoigne. Look at how he drags his axe and serves a similar gatekeeping function in the wider world, tarnished all over the shop. One of the winning elements of Miyazaki's approach to world building is that idea of parallel worlds twisting in on one another. It lets them remix stuff constantly and use the same ideas in different and often surprising ways. Patches is the only true constant. Patches being an NPC who you fight relatively early in the game. If you find mm-hmm. it, maybe you haven't, but um, you, mm-hmm. you probably have done, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really um, eloquent by Rich, um, and um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a good point, but it's really interesting to see this kind of intertextuality emerge over over time over a series of games that aren't sequentially linked by story that's just really interesting to me so Mm. i think the disneyland approach is apt you know (laughs) it's odd then when you see people say you know people who clearly love these games enough to see all these similarities 
saying like, oh, it just uses a load of the enemies from Dark Souls 3, and one of the benefits of having bounced off all their previous work is it all seems quite new to me. Mm. You know, I'm like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. So <laughs> for all I know, it's it's absolutely like recycling like hell. I have, I have no idea. Um, but, like, you know, you'd think if you were into the the whole kind of Miyazaki lore and cult thing enough to to see these similarities and to notice these things then surely you'd you'd be enough of a fan to understand that there's you know like rich says there's obviously more at play here yeah it's also a, it's also quite a kind of like how to put it it's like it's an open world of the ambition that i kind of appreciate in the sense that it's not like we've spent 400 million dollars making this it's like it's a sustainably made open world. Like mm. they could make another one of these. They don't, it doesn't have to look the shiniest because, like, mm. it it does other things really well. And like, I'm fine with the level of fidelity that's here because, and it's the same with Breath of the Wild. You know, you don't need to be technically at the top of top of the the pile to actually kind of win here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I just. I don't know. I'm, the scale of it. Like, it's the same as it's got again. Like Xenoblade, it's just so big that you're like. Yeah, I'm like I'm wowed either way. <laughs> yeah, well, let's revisit it at some point down the line, Matthew, because I'm sure we'll have more to say once we've uh, if we ever finish it or whatever happens next. So, fuck knows how long it is. IGN review said it took him eighty hours. Fucking hell! Well, um, yeah, long way to go. People um, only had it for a week. Eighty <laughs> hours in a week. Um, so I've one one bonus question for you here, Matthew, which is, um, if you were an Elden Ring boss, what would you be? I mean. <laughs> It has to be something big. I I don't think I'd be a small, fast boss. I'd be like a big, probably like a hmm, something kind of gimmicky, like something that's like a gimmicky way of killing me because I'm so big that you could like slash at my ankles for like, you know, an hour and maybe not make a dent. But you find out that you can like chuck a baguette over a cliff and I'll fall to my death or something trying to reach it probably something like that the sad truth is I've came up with basically the same answer um <laughs> so I'm called I've, I've actually came up with a name for myself so oh, okay I'm a greater rotten lad Sammy that's like I thought that works quite well um, oh nice good big Sammy holding <laughs> in there as well yeah a bit of uh, Miyazaki style intertextuality there parallel universes connecting as Rich says um the various Sammies um, so you have to throw meat <laughs> obtained in the open world into a pool of oil, then lob a little firebomb to set the oil on fire, fire and burn me alive while I'm in there. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that because I die doing what I love, which is eating cooked meat because the meat becomes cooked while it's in the fire. Um, but the other thing you can do to me is that um, I'm wearing this kind of like sort of slightly open robe. And my tummy protrudes slightly when I'm monologuing mid battle. And so, if you go, <laughs> if you go whack, go batter the tummy with a pike of some kind, and then you'll do a bit more damage. So that's kind of uh, my answer, Matthew. Surely we'd be more of a, we'd be a pairing of bosses, a kind of Ornstein and Smell type deal. Yeah, just two like really quite languid motherfuckers who are out of breath when they do like one swing with a club or something, you know. Um, but when you, yeah, but the thing is, when you kill one of them, um, the other one. Um, well, actually, no. It probably doesn't get faster or better. It just gets just runs off. That's it. <laughs> just becomes apologetic. You know, they become apologetic, runs off, and sets up their own podcast by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, okay, so it's greater rotten lads, lads, Sammy and Matty. That'll do. It's two big lads who just keep trying to get people to sign up to a Patreon. <laughs> Coming, uh, people so, are like how much the Patreon? And they're like two and two twenty thousand rooms, and you're like, oh fuck off. 
What do I get for it? Nothing. It's support. <laughs> oh, very good. There you go. That went that went to some places. Really glad I asked out. Um, so, Matthew, let's close out with some listener questions. Um, now we've talked about a very good game for 100 minutes. So, yeah. Uh, do you want to read this first one? Yeah. Hello, large men. This is good. Uh, good start. Uh, after hearing Samuel discuss how Resident Evil 4 VR feels fresh and new, it made me curious, do you think any other classics would benefit from a VR remaster? The game I'd love to see is black and white VR. It makes so much sense to me. I remember you had to physically drag yourself around by grabbing the ground with your hand, cast spells by flaming your severed limb about, stroke your creature, pick up its shit and throw it at your enemies. It would translate perfectly into VR. I know I'll never, I know it'll never happen, because uh, black and white has been lost to the void, and an RTS slash God game feels like a missed opportunity in that space right now. It seems that there's a glut of FPS games like Res and Tetris. Yeah, I I sort of see what you mean. Uh, Anyway, thanks for the work. I love and cherish the show. It's a beacon of positivity and avoids the intolerable modern-day video game discourse, apart from this episode where we've just talked about Elden Ring for (laughs) 90 minutes. Um, P.S. When you refer to yourselves as large men, it always makes me wonder, how tall are you guys? We need to know for law reasons. P.P.S. I feel like you both missed an opportunity to be food writers regarding Astro Johnny and his email asking what you'd write about other than games. A sausage roll the size of a fist is something I think about daily. Uh, That's from Nathan Brady Easton. Yeah, so um, a common pattern that listeners may or may not have detected over the past few episodes is when I've had listener questions, I don't have very good answers. Um, That's because I've pasted them into the doc at the last minute. So... When someone's like, oh, yeah, if you can make a, a game combining two different series, what would you do? And I just went, uh, side-scrolling Devil May Cry? And I just had no idea, <laughs> really. Um, so this week, I thought I'd like properly plan. So I've got loads Ooh. of answers here for um, Nathan Brady Easton. So who's um, uh, uh, so in the Res and Tetris vein, I think that like um, a Child of Eden, another Q Entertainment game published by Ubisoft, which I've mentioned on this podcast before, would be most welcome in VR. Originally, a Connect game would play plays very similarly to Res. I think that'd be spot on in VR. Probably look fantastic. I'd really love to see that done. Um, of all the GTAs, um, GTA Four is the one I'd love to see in VR because the scale of Liberty City would be perfect. Looking up at those skyscrapers, like being in New York. Um, though I am excited about San Andreas, of course, whenever that comes. Um, I think I'd mentioned Silent Hill 2 before. I think see, seeing Pyramid Head uh, from inside the closet that first time in the game and running through the fog in that town would be legit amazing and terrifying. Um, mm. I would love to love to see that. Um, MGS 2 and 3, of course, like the whether it's the big shell or the jungle, those would be fantastic environments to sort of experience in VR. From a first-person perspective or third-person? Um, first-person, because they have first-person mm-hmm. modes anyway, right? So... I think, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the um, the kind of like uh, the the more accurate aiming you've got would offset the fact that you don't have as much visibility of what's going on around you. Um, so that could work. <laughs> I had a couple more, which is uh, I thought like something like Outrun Two in VR would be cool. Um, just a kind of like a racing game that doesn't have like loads and loads of crashing in it, but it's still quite quite kind of colorful and nice. Um, I'm really curious about this version of City Skylines they're doing in VR, which I think is just called Cities VR. A great idea, a city builder in. Um, in that in that sense so which oh, i guess yeah. is, i feel like the black and white thing is tapping into that a little bit the godson yeah. thing um do you have any answers to this one matthew yeah I, I, i'm not too into my god games but i was thinking about some like 
using VR not from the first person perspective, but like looking down onto things, like maybe interacting with like a you know some kind of turn-based battle system, like a Fire Emblem or an XCOM, where you're like moving the pieces around, um, could be quite fun from that kind of perspective. I also wondered about uh, the Nintendo DS Classic 3D Picross, which was you know Picross in 3D where you chip away at like a big cube to make these weird structures. I could see that working, kind of hovering in front of you, and you're kind of you know manipulating the object. You could hold the 3D Picross grid like in your hands as a as a 3D object. That could be really cool. Yeah, good answer. Um, classic Matthew. There, any excuse to bring up you know a bit of. Um... Nintendo software that you've not thought but about. I mean, also XCOM. <laughs> XCOM. <laughs> that is true. And what about the um, the height thing? How tall are we? I think I'm six foot one, Matthew. How about you? Uh, am I taller than you? Yeah, I think so. Aren't you like six foot three or something? Six foot two? I don't know, I'd say six two, six three at a push. Yeah. Well, the giant men thing is like it's more kind of like a wide thing rather than a kind of yeah. Like we're like thing. big. We're not like neither of us are like bean poles. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, we're just like big. We're just not. I wouldn't say fat. Just big. Yeah, I would say like we we look like men who are in shape. Once I would say. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> as for the food writer thing, I don't really have really eloquent things to say about food. Um, you know, games. You know, as you can tell from this episode where we talk for a hundred minutes about one video game, I've got loads to say about games. Food, I'd be kind of like. I don't know. I sort of like. I sometimes think about those Master Chef guys where one of them takes a bite of the steak and goes, "The texture is extraordinary." And I'm like, "I what is this? You know, like what? <laughs> Do you just need a kind of, kind of like a book of like adjectives and then you're kind of good to go?" So that part of things. I'm, too, I'm, t- I'm too fussy as well. Like all the things posh restaurants do, I'm not mad into. You begin to add ingredients that I'm like you know organs and things that i'm not particularly <laughs> into and so it'd just be sort of uh i didn't like it because i don't like liver and that's no one wants to read that oh matthew i'm really tempted to go down a tangent here i'm gonna just do it okay because I, I have i've never asked you about this in the podcast right but one of the funniest things you've told me about in the last year was when there was briefly a pasta hut near your house <laughs> and like it lasted for weeks at most but it was like I, I kind of walked past it. It was like in a car park for some buildings. There was like, <laughs> even that you're giving it too much credit. <laughs> it was kind of like a little yard where they put like some kind of like tables and chairs down. And it didn't. And there was like a, a sort of taped up sign saying "pasta five quid" or something like it like a trap. <laughs> yeah, it, it looked like they were hiding from the police and like. <laughs> you told me something so, so funny about this when you went there. So, this pasta hut. Tell me what your kind of experience was. So I went, like, as, you know, I also walked past this pasta hut and thought, "Oh, that's interesting. An interesting place to start a business because it was basically hidden in someone's back garden, <laughs> well, not even their back garden, the drive up to the back of their house." Yeah. Um, and so I went in there, and there was the guy running the pasta hut and a couple of sheepish students who were eating food. And I was like, okay, this is obviously legit enough that it produces food that you can eat. So it's not a, it's not entirely a trap. And I ordered a um, – they only did two things. They did a special pasta, and they did a cheese wheel pasta, which was spaghetti the sort of, uh, that they sort of swing around on a big uh, wheel of parmesan. Um, which I thought looked a little unhygienic because it's just the same. I don't, anyway, let's not get lost in the Parmesan <laughs> thing. Um, halfway through cooking, the power went out on his pasta truck, and uh, he was like, "Oh God, the fuses have gone." And 
So he came out of his pasta hut, and I was like, oh, he's obviously going to put some new fetuses into the pasta hut. But instead, he left the pasta hut, and he walked towards the house that he was near. And he, the house, a person's house, a residential house, I should say, with all the lights off. He opened one of the windows, <laughs> climbed in through the window, and I was like, what? And that's when I saw there was like, literally like a power cable, like a, you know, like a plug socket splitter coming out of the house. And that he was basically running this, this pasta hut out of this house's sort of mains. And then I could see him inside the house with like a torch trying to put the fuses in there. And he's like, what? What is this operation? That he's like, do they know that there is a man siphoning their electricity into a pasta hut? Like, do they know that a man is basically set up a restaurant at the back of their house and is feeding off them? It was one of the craziest things I've seen. It was so funny. And it was like, it was gone, like, within two weeks of me seeing it for the first time. And I was like, not surprised. But so curious. It was like the worst location I've ever seen for a restaurant. I, <laughs> I mean, you, on, you, you wouldn't know it was there unless, like, because we kept, we tried to go back there a couple of times because the pasta was all right actually. Yeah. And every single time, like, you can only just see the top of the pasta hut over the wall, which is a, a big problem. And it's not until you turn the corner and go up to it that you see if it's open or closed. And it was always closed. It's, it's never opened again. I'm assuming it's a failed business or that. The people who are in that house returned and didn't want a man basically stealing their electricity to make weird cheesy pasta, um, which is perfectly fine. Um, the first time I went there, he gave me a voucher and it was like, next time you come, it's 20% off. And when I came back the next day, because I did go back the next day, uh, there was no one there. And he looked so sad that I had the voucher in my hand, <laughs> but I quietly balled it up and put it in my pocket and just paid full price. <laughs> Because I felt like I'd be, like, robbing his children of a house or something if I used this voucher. I just didn't want to see a man, like, ruin himself financially in front of me just so I could eat some macaroni cheese. (laughs) And he went, oh, I can't do this right now. Climbed into the uh, house and then just, like, went to bed in a bed that wasn't his. (laughs) That's so good. That is... I, I honestly, like, only by coming to Bath would you ever truly comprehend what a bad location this was. Yeah. I mean, this was, like, yeah. I mean, this is up there with, like, you know, Jack buying the magic bean as far as bad, like, business decisions go. It's like, this is obviously going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of next to a next to a pub that's on a main road, but it's not wasn't facing the main road. It was facing away from the main road. You wouldn't see it <laughs> unless you drove down one very small quiet street and then that's the only way you would see it it wasn't on google maps i mean there was so much wrong with it it was kind of hilarious um but i'm so glad i asked you about that because that should be on the record Uh, i i like that we get very hung up on the success of like businesses because we were both (laughs) fretting about the goulash hut um that's it's opening a goulash restaurant and was this? I swear, I was talking to you about. Yeah, this. yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were, came over and we were like, "That is audacious! They've upgraded the goulash hut to a, like a goulash like fixed location you can go to." And it's like this doomed shop that never ever succeeds because it's in a really weird place. It's like next to a it's next to a graveyard and a Papa John's. <laughs> like that's, right? that's probably the best the best way of describing it. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's like it seems to be the least popular of the food huts. In the row of food huts. Yeah. And you're like, if any of these people were going to, like, swing for a permanent restaurant, it would not be the goulash shop. No, it was like, the. I feel like he, 
or whoever owns it they got a foothold during the pandemic because they were like the only hut that was open for like months and months so right. whenever you went on to um deliveroo it was like 16 um sort of like uh sort of fake fronts for a one chicken restaurant in bath <laughs> um with loads of different wacky names um and then like the goulash hut and mcdonald's and that was basically it for like a year <laughs> that was like a year of living in bath so the goulash hut, i feel like he, they probably thought well we've plied our fortunes during the pandemic it's time to move this baby to like brick and mortar and like there's i've been past it i've seen one person there and the four times i went past it that one person was like a um like a just eat uh deliverer per, delivery person so right. that's it i've not seen anyone sit inside there and think i fancy some goulash tonight i'll just go to this oh, one place man. called goulash why is it just called goulash <laughs> Who like, is, like, that is something like, what do we sell? Goulash. Yeah, <laughs> what like, do we call it? Goulash. <laughs> how many cities have you ever been to where goulash is like the main focus of a restaurant in that city? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, how? Uh, and yeah, if you want goulash, there are now two places you can get it in Bath. Like, I don't think, I don't think Bath even has like two Japanese restaurants, for example. You know what no. I mean? Okay, good stuff. I'm so glad I asked about that. That's our food portion done, Matthew. So this question, what I'd like to know is, when it comes to Rennie, is Matthew a spearmint or peppermint kind of guy? That's from Lee on Discord. Uh, I always forget when I buy it, and so I get a mix. I'm like, do I? Which one do I like? I can't remember the difference, so I just I just buy them both at different times. Yeah, Matthew creates his own Rennie pick and mix. He just puts them all into a bowl and mixes them up. Um, I like to, I like to have I like to have one pe- uh, spearmint and one peppermint together. <laughs> I see. Okay. Very, uh, very precise. Another very quick one here, Matthew. I have a very simple and exciting question. How come Samuel and Matthew seems to prefer their fur, uh, full first names? No, Sam and Matt. That's some Scientologist on Discord. Mm. Um, well, you've always been a Samuel, as long as I've known you. Yeah, you know, I just, I, I think just as a kid, I, there were like lots of Sams in my class. So I thought I'd call myself Samuel, a bit, a bit distinctive. That's kind of it. But I don't know. Like, yeah. yeah. I've got a very similar origin story. <laughs> just too many mats. No one, no other mat wanted to be called Matthew, so I stuck with Matthew. Yeah, I also I think did quite a lot of people just call you Castle and stuff, and I was never really into that, so I just thought, yeah, yeah. Not, but yeah, plenty of people call me Castle. That's and that's fine. I don't mind that. It's whatever. Okay, well there you go. That's that question. Uh, a simple, uh, unexciting question with a simple, unexciting answer. So that's good. <laughs> um, do you want to read this next one, Matthew? Uh, Pothost gents, what games are you looking forward to for later in 2022? That's from Sam via Discord. Yep, so for me, um, the ones I've listed here, this is just a few of them, but uh, Weird West, I'm looking forward to playing. that. Um, mm. That's not really later in the year, that's out in March, I think, from... Uh, it's like published by Devolver and uh, developed by Raf Colantonio and, and um, some other developers. Um, this kind of like uh, isometric immersive sim in the Wild West, Ooh. that looks cool. Um, Bayonetta 3, of course, assuming that comes out this year. Excited to see that series return with um, scale-bound mechanics bolted onto it, <laughs> uh, which is quite clearly what's happened there. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, that game, Neon White, looks cool with the cards. Um, that's like an Annapurna-published game. I think that just had a like a, quite a nice demo on the uh, Steam Next Fest. Oh, that's like the sort of, sort of cart deck game meets Mirror's Edge type thing, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I thought that looked rad. Um, uh, Starfield, of course. I want to see what that looks like, the spectacle of that um, a next-gen-only uh, Bethesda RPG. Um, which is out later this year. Hellblade 2, which looked fucking rad in that Game Awards um, presentation they did. Oh, big cursed man in that trailer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, that's what we'd look like as um, Elden Ring bosses. <laughs> um, there you go. Just to imagine two of those, but one's got glasses except, on. Except moaning about having spears chucked into their face. 
<laughs> yeah. The whole time, like, oh, come on. Don't, <laughs> oh, man, don't do that. And podcasting. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a, some of mine, Matthew. How about you? Uh, Ghostwire Tokyo coming up in March. Mm. Um, you know, a, a Mikami game. Well, a Mikami studio game. Always, always something to be excited about. I just really like the art style, the color of it. Um, Breath of the Wild 2, if it comes out. Uh, I'm on a big, big open world um, thing at the moment, and yeah, I need uh, I need that to come back. I need the king to return. <laughs> um, I'm quite excited about the Marvels Midnight Suns, more for the pedigree of the team rather than any particular interest in in Marvel. Like you know, Firax is doing something new in the sort of t- uh, turn-based tactics space. I mean, come on, they did such amazing stuff with XCOM. I'm super, super up for this. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I still kind of uh, my my other one's a bit more of a wild card, but it's that that ridiculous Square Enix for spoken thing. Yeah, I, I, I love a I love a big weird AAA Square Enix swing. You know, I just want to see what they do. Yeah, you know, at the very least, jumping around that world with like mad magic leaps should be fun. Um, yeah, I'm up for it. I really want to play it. Like, I think it looks really fun in the footage. Like, it looks real pretty as you'd expect from the developers of final fantasy 15 that that part is exciting um on the same note matthew kind of like big scrolling swings the stranger of paradise game that's coming out great name for a game i love that name for a game um stranger of paradise final fantasy origins it's um which had the my way um (laughs) like the actual my way they paid for in that trailer that like preposterous (laughs) trailer i thought all of that was great fun um really curious to see how that ends up you know yeah. yeah, and people people are into that kind of thing. Say it is like legitimately very good. Yeah, um, people seem to be warming to it, having like memed it, like almost memed it to death. It's come back, which is like my favourite like character arc in video games. <laughs> Quite also quietly like really good Square Enix time as well. They've got like that triangle strategy game out. They've got the um, uh, Live a Live, is that what it's called? Or Live a Live? I've no idea how you pronounce that. But yeah, that yeah. RPG that's been brought back in the Octopath Traveler style. They've brought back um, Chrono Cross, uh, PS1 RPG. And um, yeah, Forspoken, Stranger of Paradise. And I think they've got these like Voice of Cards, is it? Or some kind of like series of card games that's been releasing. Yeah, that's meant to be really like good. Taro ones. I didn't really like the first one too much. Okay. But... Well, there you go. Still, like quite a big variety of stuff for a AAA publisher um, in 2022. Mm. So, yes, uh, good answers to that one, Matthew. So, um, hey, guys, I love the podcast. This one is a cheeky two-parter. What has been your favourite podcast to make so far? And assuming Yuji Naka wasn't available, who would be your dream guest? That's from Nash Iavai Discord. Um, do you want to answer this one first, Matthew? Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of episodes I liked, uh, I really liked uh, when we talked to Simon um, Parkin. Because uh, I know Simon, you know, a bit from, uh, you know, events and seeing him around and stuff, but it's probably the longest we've just, just chatted about, you know, you know his his roots and everything. And that was that was really fun. I really enjoyed that. I'm just generally all the guest episodes. It's always nice to have powers on and have a good, have a good chat. Um, uh, I liked the Pokemon episode. I just thought it was, I was surprisingly interested in Pokemon. I thought uh, you and Jay both brought a lot of really interesting stuff and really good chat for that. Um and of course, you know the drafts. Um, probably the the N sixty four draft was probably like the most chaotic. Um, maybe I'm misremembering that, but that was a that was a good one. It had the like anime betrayal moment of me like yeah. you know taking Gold Knight and Perfect Dark. That was really fun. Yeah, I echo what Matthew says about the drafts. Um, 
part of the reason like we vary the episodes up so much is to, to keep it fun for ourselves as well like it's fun to like have different things to talk about and this time this is one of the few times we've done just an episode about one new game and nothing else that's quite rare mm. for us but um i i'll be honest i started with the the title two giant men play elden ring and work backwards <laughs> that was basically i just thought that yeah. was funny so that's good um yeah i like the simon episode too i don't know simon that well but um he obviously like listened to the podcast and then we was really engaged with discussing the the stuff that we talked about so i thought it was great i love the metal gear episode with rich i'm looking forward to doing more metal gear episodes with rich mm. um probably in april we're going to try and do metal gear solid so the first one so yeah yeah those, those some of them but it's just a pleasure doing podcasts with matthew oh well it is it's just it's really good it's really good having a little thing you go go talk about a thing you like and then thousands of people listen and people feedback and like it it's good mm. it's nice um so in terms of a dream guest this is a really weird one right but i have a kind of a dream podcast of doing the making of gta chinatown wars where we talk to like three different (laughs) devs and stitch them together over like a podcast and talk about that one game um don't know why but i just think that'd be quite fun just to talk about a sort of i think a, a ds only well ds released exclusive gta game doing a making of on that would be quite on brand for this podcast do you have a dream mm. guest matthew yeah oh it's, it's so difficult because we don't really do like developer interviews do we we have we haven't we, done we could we could yeah we could. I mean, are we talking about like you know, if it's a fantasy universe where like the language barrier isn't a language barrier, you know, obviously the mighty shooter Kumi, I'd love to have him on and and run all my boring Ace Attorney theories and takes uh, past him. Um, uh, Kimura, who made Little King's Story and um, Dandy Dungeon, um, I think he does actually speak reasonably decent English. He's uh, he definitely write he can write in English because I've seen him. You know, he, he wrote us some stuff in Endgamer. Um, he wrote us like a letter and things. Um, actually, that could have been translated. I don't know why I assumed it came from indirect. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'd love to talk to him. Just very, you know, really into his games, really like his sensibility. I think he'd have fun and be up for our daft shit. Like, in terms of, like, games, journos and mags people, like, I feel like we can make most things happen. And I think we've got, like, a few fun ones sort of lined up and people we're talked to and stuff. Yeah. Oh, imagine if we ever got Tony Mott to come and talk about Edge. That would be good. Yeah, that side. It's on the dev side. I can't can't think of many more. Like Harvey Smith would be fun. Like, he's just had a really interesting career. Obviously, uh, working on Redfall at the moment, I think. But, you know, now um, Arcane. But obviously was there during the Ironstorm days, which itself is an amazing story. So um he'd be fun probably like a lot of people who work at arcane to be honest to be quite fun level designers Ooh. and stuff directors um yeah there's uh there's a few people but um yeah good stuff matthew so that wraps up this podcast i can't remember what next week's about i think we're coming up to the episode where we have to do a history of kirby games which you you asked for this year matthew how are you feeling about about that one coming up yeah good i've, I've actually just this week i will have i will have played and written about the new kirby game wow okay. um so i have played it i've been i've been using that as like a sort of unicorn chaser after playing elden ring that really <laughs> bums me out and then i go into like the super mad world of uh, the new kirby which i'm really really enjoying so far oh, um but we'll obviously we'll get into that in more detail in the Kirby episode. That's good because I've done no research for that one yet. So hopefully Matthew can carry that one in the way that I carried the Pokemon. Oh god, one. I'm not a big uh, yeah. We'll come to it. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of late to the Kirby game a bit, <laughs> but I you know I think it's worth celebrating. Even if we just mostly talk about the new one, I think that'll be fun. So that's uh, yeah. and then do like a top five or something. So yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, if you'd like to follow the podcast, we're Backpage Pod on Twitter. 
Uh, that's where we'll tweet about new episodes and stuff. That's also where you can go if you want to find the link to our Discord and join our community. About 244 people, I think, are there at the moment. And um, oh. really nice conversations going on. Quite a pleasant environment, I would say, we've cultivated there, Matthew. Um, mm. Really good. Um, we've got a Patreon coming soon at some point in March. Not sure the exact date yet, uh, yet but um, my intention is to launch that with every episode already in the the feed and then the bonus episodes go in there too so i think all you'd have to do is copy them if you sign up to the five pound tier you'd copy and paste like the rss thing it read thing into your podcasting app and then you'd get all the podcasts in one place including the bonus ones it's kind of how i'm trying to do it so watch out for that right. but um Yes, that'll take a little bit of work and research on my part. Mm. Where can people find you on social media, Matthew? Uh, Mr. Buzzle underscore pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. There's also backpagegames at gmail.com if you'd like to email us a, us a question. And uh, we'll be back next week as ever. Goodbye. Bye for now.